0: Morning again. Okay, so this morning we're going to cover almost five whole verses, like sprinting through this. So we're going to look at uh, Revelation one uh, nine through thirteen a. So the first part of thirteen, and then we'll we'll stop. And also, just so you know, I'm be, I've begun I've begun working on a thing. I'm not sure what to call it. Something like you can't know the players without a program or cast of characters or something like that, where, you know, in the Revelation, there are so many descriptions of things or people that are a little bit confusing. You know, who are the two witnesses or, uh, you know, the 144,000 or the temple or what have you. Some of those are very clearly stated within the Revelation itself. Others, you know, it's a bit speculative. And so I'm going to I'm going to make a list, and some of the things, like I say, even what we're going to look at this morning, they're not up for grabs. Other things, I'm going to have to make the argument, but it'll be the cast of characters as I see it, and hopefully that'll help you understand um, as we go through the remainder of the book. This morning, now, we're looking at verses 9 through 13a. I've entitled this message, I am with you always, which is not from this verse, but I think applies very much. It's from the Great Commission, but I'll tie that together in just a minute. Hear now the Word of God. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamus, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray for myself that my teaching on this passage would be accurate. I pray for everybody in the room that we would all be good students, that we would be willing to be corrected, all of us, myself included, when by your Spirit you grant us the wisdom to see things. We do pray, Father, that above all things, that we would grasp a keener understanding of the glory of God as we look at your word. And especially, Father, I think of us appreciating all the more the very event that we are participating in this very minute. So we do pray that as we examine your word, that by your spirit, these things would become clear to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With the uh, intensity of the subject matter of the revelation, I have found that it's a bit of a difficult book to preach through in a culture that really, relatively speaking, has been pretty friendly to the Christian faith. So the, the comforts and the encouragements and the applications of the revelation, I would say, are more suited to a, a church under the thumb of Nero, or under the religious depression of a Caiaphas, or moving further into history, maybe the church under the persecution of Thomas de Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition or some of the popes of history that made things very difficult. To be sure, the, the current political and religious climate that we live in has been moving, I would argue, in a hostile direction. I think that's been happening for a number of generations. Probably never in my life. Have I seen what appears to be the primary call in Revelation, which I would argue to persevere in the faith? I think if we were going to kind of find what is the call in Revelation, it is endure to the end, be faithful to the end. And probably never in my life have I observed a time when that call has been more suitable than what it currently is. I think that defectors from the church and heretics are aplenty right now. The churches are becoming something that doesn't even resemble the church. So the church is not in a good place. And with that, we see a hostility to the true Christ of scriptures. So we see that. But let us not be fooled. None of us are experiencing in our current culture what these seven churches were experiencing. We're not under Nero. There's no Caiaphas. There's no Jerusalem council doing to us what what they were doing to them at this time. So that makes it a little bit tough for us to be comforted. I say it'd be easier to preach in China when that's really, it's actually happening. Now, something I think it's important for you to understand as students is that when a pastor opens a portion of Scripture, what they call like a pericope, or we call it sometimes just a passage or a thought, that pastor will inevitably highlight in his sermon portions of that passage that he thinks his particular congregation or his particular Christian culture needs to hear more than maybe another portion. There are certain portions in a passage where you're going, we all kind of know this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Other times you're going, we've lost this entirely, so we're going to push on this a little bit further. One thing that jumped out at me as I examined this morning's passage was how, for me, in my early faith as a Christian, the the true impact of this passage, I would think, would have been entirely lost on me. Just to give you a little bit, brief history. Um, I probably came to faith at seven, but then we moved from Hermosa to Redondo and my family didn't go to church. And then at 17, I started seriously, you know, blocking my faith. And I was, as a young teenager, pretty, pretty committed, pretty vibrant in my faith. I, I was into it. I was taking it seriously. I was involved in Bible studies. I was serving, and you know, it was just kind of the way God wired me to be very much, let's do it. Let's open our Bibles. Let's figure it out. Let's be faithful. Yet, in that culture in which I lived, in which I grew up, it was not a matter of emphasis at all to, number one, be baptized. I was a Christian for seven years before I was baptized. It was not a matter of emphasis at all to join a church. I didn't join a church. I don't remember when I first joined a church. It was just kind of like, it might be a good idea, but you certainly don't need to do it. The Lord's Supper, yeah, you know, that's a fun event, but it wasn't on the short list of things people were telling me that you really needed to do if you wanted to grow in your faith. Well... As I was poring over the passage this morning, I realized how difficult it would be to enjoy, if I could put it this way, the power of this portion of Scripture when we function in a Christian culture that has downplayed the value of actually being part of the church. And by church, I'm talking about a baptized, communicant member of a Christian church. Now, I'm going to get back to that in just a second, but we're going to now just pour through this portion, and I'm going to hit on some of these things and highlight things. And so if you're taking notes, some of these things maybe will be new to you, maybe not. John begins this section by identifying identifying himself as their brother and companion. I, John, your brother and companion. Well, herein, friends, lies one of the unique roles of being in the ministry. And by being in the ministry, I'm not talking about ordained as a pastor or an elder or a deacon. I'm talking about really even what I was doing, you know, 50 years ago. Talking about all of us are called to minister. We are a priesthood of believers. So we're all called to some extent to serve Christ, ministering to, to one another. And one of the unique roles of being in the ministry is that it's not like other, if we could call it this way, professions. In many professions, once the hour is up, the professional just moves on to the next patient. I mean, think about it. You have a counselor, you have a doctor, you have a lawyer, you have a teacher. You know, you don't really hang out with them. You don't don't hang out with your... When you're done with your hour with your lawyer... You don't have lunch. He's like, you know, time's up, next. But if you desire to minister, that's different. You, you need to be willing to sit in the ashes ministering. Then you have dinner together. You know, I mean, it's, I have to say, I mean, I know for me, more specifically, I will have a married couple in my office, doing marriage counseling, and it's very intense, very personal, right? They're revealing things that are very confidential, and oftentimes, they'll be at our house that night at a social event, and go, where I have to be kind of careful to not bring up what we just talked about in a group setting. It's very unique ministerial, that way, uh, ministerial relationship that way. But we are called to have more than this kind of like surface relationship with each other. Paul writes in Romans 12, 15, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're part of the same family. We don't have that. It's not just that professional relationship. We don't have the luxury of just remaining distant. What we see here is with John is the beginning of a defined relationship between him and his readers. There is a relationship that they have. And what is the nature of that relationship? What is the nature of that bond that puts John kind of in the fray with everybody else? This, this companionship, this brotherhood. You know what it is? It is the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you, we need to unpack that a little bit. First of all, I have to tell you so many times, that I, have to, I didn't do it that much anymore, but in the past I'd write a whole sermon and I'd reread it and I had to change all the pronouns from second person plural to first person plural. Right? It used to be you, 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 and you. And then I realized, well, it's not you, you, it's we, it's us, it's ours. Even as Jesus taught us to pray right in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven. So, you know, it's this corporate relationship that we're all part of. But John was no stranger to what his readers were being challenged with. We're we're in this kind of together. You know, just for you to know, and I appreciated Dan's fairly long portion of his prayer about me, and I I appreciate that. But we're all, I'm not somehow outside of what you're going through. We're all, we're all kind of going through whatever it is we're going through, whether it's the pain or the sorrow or the joy or the difficulty. This is something we're all going through together. And I can't dismiss myself from you, and you shouldn't dismiss yourself from me. And John is kind of going, look at it. I'm a brother and companion in the tribulation that we're all going through here. There is this mentality that I've discovered, and it had to do with what I was talking about earlier, where we don't think we need to go to church. I mean, we're going to get into the emphasis of the church here in just a second. I don't think I really need to go to church. It's a good idea, but I don't really need it. Let me tell you, those of us who don't think we need the Word of God, those of us who don't think we need the sacraments, and those of us who think we do not need to be part of the church probably need it more than anybody. That's a very unhealthy and unbiblical un- mentality. Well, here we have John. He's a companion in, quote, the tribulation. You don't have to travel too far in your Christian bookstore before you're going to find a whole section of Christian books dedicated to eschatology, the end times, and the best-selling books. And if you're, if you're at all acquainted with Christianity in the 20th century, you've heard of the tribulation. Right? The tribulation. What it generally is, is this, the way it's presented in the modern, more sensational eschatological books, it's this portion of time in the future, usually seven years, where things are going to get really bad. And there's a big argument between pre-tribbers and post-tribbers. Again, I'll put this in my, you can't know the players without a program, what does it mean if you're pre-tribulation or or post-tribulation? Some people say, look at that big tribulation, which, by the way, is covered in chapters 4 through 18 of the Revelation. Many people are like, in chapter 4, the church is raptured, it's out. So it's pre trib. We're going to be all gone before the tribulation begins. There are other people who are post tribulational, and they're going, no, the church is going to have to endure the tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, there'll be the secret rapture and so forth. And I remember years ago when I was wrestling with this, and I went to a foot buddy whose theology I really respected. And I said, well, what do you think? Do you think it's pre-tribulational or post-tribulational rapture? He goes, I think you're arguing about what colored dinosaurs are. <laughs> I go, what? He goes, it's neither. And I, I have to say, I respectfully disagree. I think they're both, both those positions are wrong. To be sure, Christians are called to um, endure tribulation. I mean, it's, it's part of the deal. I don't know if you've been presented with a Christianity where it's all easy and, you know, just blue skies and green lights. But that is not the Christianity that Jesus presents. You know, and I, I don't know if this word is even allowable anymore. I just feel like 21st century Christianity has become effeminate. Oh, I don't really like it. I don't, I'm not going back to church because they treated me meanly or something, you know. And you're like, oh, wow, you know that you gave up pretty easy. I had a bad experience, you know, and and I'm not justifying bad experiences. I'm just saying we're called to persevere. We're called to endure, and the context of that endurance is, as you'll see, in the church. It's not, you know, like, you know what, I can't can't handle the church. It's just going to be me and my guitar down at the beach, and that's going to be my church. That is patently unbiblical. So there is a call to endure tribulation, in the scriptures, Jesus said, and I could could have picked one of many, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, count on it, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, we're signing up for that. But what you're going to hear people say, if you talk to anybody about this at all, is they're going to make a distinction between tribulation and the tribulation, right? That's the difference. It's the definite article. Not a tribulation, the indefinite, but the tribulation. Because the definite article, the tribulation, seems to be pointing to some specific tribulation. Now, I think there's some accuracy to that. I think those seven churches were dealing with some specific era in history that we could call the tribulation. But here's what we need to understand. John's going through it. The definite article is here. John is going, we are brothers and companions in the tribulation. So however we're going to understand it, I think it's yet another argument that if that specific tribulation is some unique seven-year period, it's. and I don't think it's necessarily seven years, by the way, it is the period that John himself is enduring with the church. And I don't think the natural reading of the text allows that to be anything but the tribulation that we're going to be reading of in chapters 4 through 18. Well, just so you understand, the, um, the current model that is the most popular that you're going to hear is that um, the millennium is concurrent and synonymous with the kingdom of God, just so you understand that. Because John, he is a brother and companion in the tribulation and in what else? The kingdom. So let's kind of appreciate you know, kind of what's going on here, you know, in this passage, because there's quite a contrast that John is making. Like, he starts off in the beginning going, if you read this, and if you do these things, and you keep these, you'll be blessed. Grace and peace to you from the triune God. He talks about the cleansing of the blood of Christ, and that we've all been commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. He then declares and heralds that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you're reading this going, wow, this is good news, good stuff. Yet that which was bonding John to his readers was that they were fellowshipping in the tribulation. So let's appreciate before we move on the transition and the contrast that John is making between that which they were observing and that which he was proclaiming in terms of what is real. Just keep in mind that tribulation for Christians, and I think that can extend to a lot of things, should never, it's, it's hard. Let's not pretend, We, let's not pretend it's not hard. And I think it extends to a lot of things. I think it could just be the effects of the fall in general. I think that if, you know, the the way the fall has affected us in terms of our health, in terms of our disposition, in terms of our struggles, probably more specifically in terms of us standing up for our faith and then being shut down, it's difficult. I don't expect Christians to walk around with some goofy smile on their face all day long as if everything's okay. But it should never be a matter of despair. It may be hard but it's never a matter of hopelessness. He, as Jesus said, take heart, for I've overcome the world. After the apostles had been beaten for their faith, okay, they're beaten at the behest of the religious leaders. How discouraging would that be? You know, I've never had, I've, I've dealt with people who are like, when well, I'm not going to church anymore, I'm like, well, what'd they do? They're like, well, they, they, made a decision to paint the church, and I wasn't consulted, so I just can't suffer that. Like, nobody's ever once said, well, I left because they beat me. My pastor beat me up. And yet that's what was happening. The religious leaders beat them, and we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 and 42, that they departed from the presence of the council, that's a religious council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And notice this in the next verse. They didn't go, I'm done with this. No more for me. They said, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, moving on to what I was talking about earlier, the kingdom. The kingdom. That's another thing they were fellowshipping in. They were companions in. If there is a word in your Bibles that has become so ambiguous to the point of almost meaninglessness, it's this word kingdom. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? And it shouldn't be ambiguous. It shouldn't be difficult. How many parables did Jesus teach that begin with the words, and the kingdom of God is like? And yet, I bet you, if we started quizzing, even in this room, and you know our church generally is pretty theologically savvy people, if we started saying, well, what's the kingdom, what's the kingdom, what's the kingdom of God, we'd probably get a lot of different answers. And I'm not saying I'm insensitive to that, because I was already a pastor. And I was shocked when I read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I would argue to be the best protracted statement of faith that the church has ever come up with in terms of what the Bible actually means. I think it's a great resource. It's our secondary standard of our church. And I, by secondary, only the Bible is primary. That is secondary. But I was shocked when I read this. This is chapter 25, paragraph 2, that the visible church, not the invisible, the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation wow, that just, I don't need the church. I got the internet. I don't need the church. I've got publishers giving me books. You know, you, you might, it seems like the church is expendable because I've got so many other ways I can access all the information I need. But if you read your Bibles, it's not expendable. It is the means by which God has chosen to redeem the world. The church is the vehicle that God is using And it's not expendable. And they put the word ordinary in there because, the ordinary possible, because we recognize there are exceptions to the rule. But I'm afraid we've made the exception the rule in terms of our understanding of the necessity of the church. You see, the confession also teaches of the invisible church. Now, there's a lot of, by the way, different definitions that we can come up with in the Bible in terms of the word church. There's visible, the invisible, the local uh, at one point, when Jesus says, tell to the church, he's probably talking about the elders of the church and so forth. So you can't dig into all of that. And I would also argue that the invisible church, who, by the way, is known but to God, is more important than the visible church. Because the invisible church are the true elect of God. They are the actual believers. So if you were to say, well, should a person, what's more important, a person be in the visible church or the invisible? I would say, yeah, the, the invisible. But I feel like we have focused on the invisible to the extent and have dismissed the visible to a level that is really unhealthy. You know, I don't know if you've done this. I haven't said this, I don't think. If I have, it's been years. I've definitely thought it. Usually, when I'm involved in something negligent, when I'm not doing something I should be doing, or, you know, and I'm like, oh, and this, this isn't the best thing for me to do or say or be. And then I'll say, and I'll bet some of you have said this, and I'll say, but God knows my heart. And one theologian who had the same experience I did, his his response to that was, yeah, and that's the bad news. (laughs) R.C. Sproul, in writing for our witness for Christ. And I again, that was a term that was very popular. I want a witness for Christ. Interestingly enough, the Greek word is the word martyr, where we get the word martyr from. It's the idea of sharing your faith, that you are called to have an impact on other people for the faith. R.C. Sproul wrote this, to bear witness is to give testimony, evidence, or manifestation of something that is not seen. In other words, what he's saying is, you got to take that which you can't see, and you got to make it seeable. Hearable, doable, touchable. Cal, he then, in order to explain the statement, quotes Calvin, who wrote this, the primary task of the invisible church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Now, again, at the risk of getting too deep, I'm going to tell you, I think it would be irresponsible for me in teaching through this because I, I realize that I am holding a view that is counter to most of the books you're going to read that are newer than 100 years old. If, if you go older, you'll be like, well, Pastor Paul, this is boilerplate eschatology. But if you go newer, you're going to be like, what in the world are you teaching in this church? The, the current, more popular view, known, known as dispensationalism, they are the ones that hold that the kingdom of God is concurrent and synonymous with the millennium, that thousand-year reign of glory, or whatever you want to call it. Now, again, I'm going to explain this more fully later. But their view, keep this in mind, the millennium is a future event. happens after the second coming, according to this view. That is concurrent and synonymous with the kingdom. Are you beginning to see a problem here? Because you should be. Because John is saying, I'm a brother and a companion in the kingdom. See, it just, now, don't get me wrong. There's a way, the the people who hold these views, I went to a seminary that held this view. They have a way to make it work, and it's not crazy, but it's certainly not the natural reading of the text. The natural reading of the text is, the kingdom has begun, and we are part of it. I remember attending, when I was in college, a dispensational church, very popular dispensational pastor. It was the church where I got baptized, you know, seven years after I was a Christian. And I remember him addressing the church. The church had gathered for worship, and he said, let me tell you something, people, this is not the kingdom of God. And everybody laughed, and it was a big joke, because in their mind, The millennium is where the kingdom actually begins. And they had almost this fantasy world in terms of what that kingdom looks like. And it was silly to think that the gathering of God's people for the church somehow equated to the kingdom of God. That whole church was convinced, this isn't the kingdom of God. This is the church. It's good that we gather. It's important. But it's not the kingdom of God. That is counter to the way the kingdom of God has been understood throughout the history of the church. Keep in mind, that which was bonding John to his readers was that they were together in the kingdom of God. Well, moving on, John is writing from Patmos. That's a little island. It's like a rocky island. I think it's like four by eight miles in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor at the time. Today, it would be Turkey. And uh, the, the seven churches, which would be, as we'll see, a postal Roman postal route was right, kind of there. But Patmos was, and it's probably about a quarter to the size of Catalina Island, was for political prisoners. If you were on Patmos, you were a political prisoner, especially those who would not yield to Caesar. That was the crime Now let me point something out to you that maybe you don't know, maybe I've said it before, but that religious persecution, if you find yourself on the wrong end of people who just don't like the gospel, the offense of the gospel, at least in our culture for the most part, that will result in kind of being socially ostracized. You're going to show up, you're going to tell people about church, you're going to tell people about Jesus, and you're not going to be invited to the next cocktail party. All right, But when, as John wrote, he said, I'm on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ. When your testimony of Jesus Christ is that he is the king of kings, that's when you find yourself on the crosshairs of those authority figures that have a standing army. Again, going back to to China, they have the three self-government-funded, government-ordained, it's not funded, but government-ordained church. You can meet and you can pray all you want. And you can have your quiet times and you can have all these spiritual disciplines. You know what you can't do? You cannot, in your sermon, say that the leader of our country should bow the knee to Christ. That's when you're going to find yourself in a labor camp. That's when you're going to go, you will no longer be, and they will read your sermons, especially if your church gets big enough to make sure you're not saying that. When the religious persecutors of Jesus were trying to get Pilate to follow their bidding, and they were issuing all these accusations against Jesus, the one accusation that really got Pilate's attention was when they said, he says he is a king. All of a sudden Pilate, a Roman governor, is like, whoa, wait a minute. Because Pilate's not going to allow somebody who's subversive to Caesar. And then when, you know, the the, the, the hesitancy of, of Pilate, and he it's almost like he's like makes a statement. He goes, do you, do you want me to you want me to crucify your king? No, I'm gonna go way ahead here. And then we'll come back to this at another time. But here, I would argue, is the first example we see in the Bible of people in the New Testament taking the mark of the beast. And let me tell you, just in case you don't know, I don't think it's a tattoo. I don't think it's the hand stamp at Disneyland. I think if you want to see an example of taking the mark of the beast, it is found when he said, do you want me to crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. That was the religious community saying, we have no king but Caesar. The civil magistrate in their mind had ascended to the top post. Well, John says he was in the spirit, which I would take to understand that he was being moved by the Holy Spirit to write the infallible and inerrant word of God. And that phrase in the spirit, Paul uses differently. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8 to Describe all of us, any Christian who's in the Spirit. John's using it in a different way. He's basically using it in such a way that we see in 2 Peter one twenty one, where we read, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what I think John is saying. John is kind of going, I'm describing to you kind of the way verbal plenary inspiration works. right? I'm in the Spirit. And then he says, it was the Lord's day. Well, what's that? I mean, what you have here is a very convincing argument over and against a lot of people that the Lord's Day, that is the Sabbath, most people that we will run into today will say the Lord the Sabbath day has been abrogated. It is no longer incumbent upon the Christian to keep a Sabbath. That's an Old Testament ritual. That's an Old Testament law. It's a ceremonial law and it doesn't apply any longer. Except John, writing probably... In the late 60s, over against some people's view, still we're fully in the new covenant, and we're. And what day is John writing on? The Lord's Day, the Sabbath Day. He hears a loud voice, as of a trumpet. Now, just you know, again, you know, we could spend a lot of time on any of these things, but I'll just say, a trumpet in the Bible was a beckoning; it's a call to action. You blow the trumpet, and it's time, like, to do battle, to go to work, to do something. And now I want to point something out that we all need to kind of get in our minds in order for us, for the remainder of reading Revelation, for things to make sense. Because John is going to employ here a verbal and literary pattern that we need to understand as we read through the rest of Revelation. He heard, right? I heard. And then in verse 12, what does he do? He turns and he looks, right? He hears and then he sees. That's going to happen throughout the revelation. And these aren't two different things. One is an augmentation of the other. In other words, he hears one thing and then he turns and looks and he sees more fully what he had heard. He heard later on the lion. I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I turned and I looked and behold a lamb. I heard heard there were 144,000. And then I turned and looked. And it was an innumerable number of people and so forth. So we need to understand kind of the literary pattern that John is using in order for us to kind of go, these aren't two different things. This is an augmentation of the one thing, giving the fuller picture of it. John is then commissioned by God, and we're reminded there, the Alpha and the Omega, to write what he sees in a book. Write it down. Write this down. You know what? Word of mouth. You know what they call oral tradition. It goes from generation to generation to generation. There's there's some value to that. Dramas, value. Drawings, value. And, you know, we've gone to Italy a couple of times, and the art, the religious art is unbelievable. A lot of it's idolatrous and heretical, but others are really impressive but there's nothing like the word in terms of that which is solid. I mean, we can screw everything up, you know, I mean, no matter what. I mean, we have the capability of ruining whatever is given to us. But it's harder to ruin a sentence. We can look at a painting and have a hundred different interpretations. But when you have a sentence, it's just clearer. So God has commissioned that his word be brought to us in writing. Chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us about the will and the word of God that for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world committed his word unto writing. I have to do is, you are like, well, can you make a biblical argument for that? Easily. First of all, God did it, Right? Write it in a book. Second, all you have to do is look at how many times Jesus said, "Have you not read? Have you not read?" It's certainly part of His instruction that he, either he's comforting or challenging or chastening. Have you not read? I have to tell you, I you know I like these I like these screens. Some people didn't like them. I like to put the Word of God up there because I feel like the only value I have really to you in terms of being up here is can I make that clear to you. And sometimes I'll put a passage up there and I'll look at it and I'll look at you and I'll be like, can you see what I'm seeing here? And you know what? It's my responsibility to do that. And you know what else? It's your responsibility, if I'm wrong, to point it out. You know, I, these, I got the whole sermon written out word for word. What I just said just now is not on these pages, by the way. But I got it all written out word for word. You know, so you can check out, you know, the Bible says check the scriptures daily, test all things, hold to what is true. You have, you have it, we leave here, you eat a donut or whatever it is you like to do, and then we come back and the mic is open and you have a, you not only you have the freedom, you have an obligation to go, Pastor Paul, this doesn't seem right to me. And it's not as if I'm going to recant, but no, I might. <laughs> right? But I think that is, way, that is the way the church stays healthy. Like, we all we all recognize that it is not the personality of the person up front. It's the word of God to which we must be accountable. Well, it is here that he is told to write to the seven churches, which I said earlier, they were on a Roman postal route, just, uh, you know, on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And when we get to those churches, we're going to, deal with the specific issues of those specific churches, and to whatever extent that applies to us, it applies to us. There are a lot of lessons in those churches, I think, of value to this very day. But now, John moves from hearing to seeing. Remember what I said? He turns and he looks. And what we're really given here is the very first vision. We're going to get a lot of them, but this is the first vision we see in the Revelation. What does he turn and see? I turned and I saw seven Golden lampstands. Now, I said earlier, you know, some of, the, some of the metaphors that are used or the symbols that are used, you know, I'm going to give you what my opinion is, and I'll be honest, I'm like going, this is my opinion, there are other opinions. This is not open to opinion. Verse 20 tells us what the seven golden lampstands actually are. It's the churches. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. Now, let's talk a little, a little bit about a lampstand. And again, I'm, you know, I was tempted to kind of get into all the passages that talk about Jesus being the light of the world, right? And I think those would all apply. But just so you know, in the Old Covenant, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place, there was a candelabra. And the candelabra had seven candles. You so see, you have one candelabra and seven candles. This is a little different. Now you have seven lampstands. Each, each has their own. And I think some people have made convincing arguments that what we see here is the decentralization of the church. In the old covenant, you basically had one church, it was Israel. But in the new covenant, you have every nation kindred in tongue. So every church, in a sense, has its own candle. But here's the point that I think is more important, at least in terms of how it impacts me. And that is, the churches, they're the lampstands. They're not, they're not the lamp. The, the church isn't the light. The church isn't the candle. The church isn't the bulb. They're the stand that holds the light. And if the church is not faithful in her commission to herald the true light, you okay, understand what's going on here? He's kind of going, God is going, there is a means by which I want the light who is my son to be presented to a lost and dying world, and it's going to be through the church. And so the prime directive of the church is to shine the light of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to love God, to love one another. And the warning that we're going to see in the seven letters of seven churches is Jesus saying, if you you cease to do that, if you fail to do that, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. And I have to say, even in my lifetime, I think I've seen that happen many times. And I don't think a month goes by when I don't, somewhere in the back of my mind, have this fear, is he going to remove our lampstand? Is that going to happen? And I don't think it's some weird paranoia. I think it's a healthy fear. And I want whoever takes my place someday to have that same fear. You need to get up here and recognize, and I came up with this, and this is totally from the hip and may completely be false. So just... But what I find is when I say something like that, how interested you all are. (laughs) This is going to be interesting, honey. (laughs) Because I started thinking, imagining that, you know, you have this lampstand with the lamp on it, and the light is actually Christ, and Jesus takes the lampstand. Because we tend to think, well, then Jesus is going to be gone. But I think it's a mistake for us to ever think God leaves. He's either there in his grace or he's there in his wrath. And the image that came into my head was, "The lampstand is taken away. the lamp falls on the floor and burns the church down." Now it may be a little graphic, but to him who is given much, much is required, and the great, one of the greatest curses you can read in the Bible are aimed toward those who misrepresent who God is. And so I think the church and again, I just I'm taking that metaphor maybe further than it was designed to go, but get the point. Now, I want to just finish up with what I opened with. And that is that the Revelation is written to churches, not to individual Christians. Now, keep in mind, it does include individuals. I mean, any collective is made up of individuals, right? I mean, there are a bunch of individual people in this room that form a corporate body, but the letter and the letters from Jesus are going to be written to the corporate body do, are they applicable individually and there are are there places in the bible where paul especially is going to go you know to himenaeus and alexander or to these guys better watch yourself or whatever but it's written to churches and this is in this my friends is the context where we see something i think is remarkable this is the thing when i said When I started reading this, I realized this would not have impacted me 40, 50 years ago. But when I read it now, I think to myself, this is astonishing. John turns and he sees something, really someone in the midst of the church, the Son of Man, and who we all know. Is Christ. It's it's the number one way that he designated himself. When he talked about himself, more than any other phrase, it was the Son of Man. And John turns and he looks and he he sees the church. And in the midst of the church, he sees Christ. We're all familiar with that great promise in the Great Commission, right? When Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I mean, this great commission that includes almost everything. And what is, how does he finish it? And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I would say, because he's not talking about just his general omnipresence, you know, that all of God is everywhere all the time. No, in a very unique and consecrated way, Jesus is with his church, And I would argue that what we see here in this portion of the Revelation is probably um, the greatest image we can perceive of, of the presence of Christ in the keeping of that promise. I am with you, he says. John turns and looks and he gets a feel for what that looks like. I am with you, walking, tabernacling in the midst of these churches. Now, next time we gather, we are going to talk, and that's why I ended this in the middle of the verse, because he's going to start, what we're going to see next time is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is actually described. So we'll get to that. Everybody wants a picture of Jesus in their head. I don't know if you realize this, but historically, that is a violation of the second commandment. To even tap pictures of Jesus or even to think of Jesus is a violation of the second commandment. And there was a time when I found comfort in these pictures of Jesus that are so popular. And you know the ones I'm talking about because there's like seven of them. And if I put them up there and I said, who's that? You'd be like, oh, that's Jesus. like, because we've been so conditioned. And I I don't want to sound disrespectful, but so many of them just look like my buddies down at the beach. You know, long hair, blue eyes, tanned. When he probably looked more like Muammar Gaddafi you know, than he did, like, Jim Cavizial or something. But the point is, we're not supposed to think of, even the apostles, when they talked about Jesus in the flesh, they said, we no longer think of him that way. So I think it's a very unhealthy thing to have this kind of image of Christ because then inevitably, well, I have little sermons on it, and inevitably it's going to be false. Not only is it a violation of the commandment, you're going to have a wrong image. And you're only going to pick the image that you like. But here we do see Jesus described in such a way that we are to actually think of, especially in the midst of our tribulation, but we'll get to that next week. For now, I think we need to stop and just meditate upon the fact that here is where we see Jesus in the church in a very consecrated way. He is here. How does that speak to people who think they don't need to go to church? They don't need to be part of the church. It's like saying you love a relative who you never, ever visit, or they invite you to your house, and you're like, eh, you don't love them. They're they're just uh, somebody that you can do without. We can't say that we have a living, vibrant relationship with God and neglect his family, neglect his body, neglect the means by which he actually has chosen to be with us. Bill made the statement on this. Jesus' constant presence within the churches means that he always knows their spiritual condition, <laughs> which results either in blessing or judgment. I can't talk about good news, bad news. So I was, I was writing this and I was tempted to say here something like, something clever like, so friends, we have a special guest in the room or something like that. But that would be a backward statement. It is his house and we are his guests and we have been invited to worship with his church. I can't go much further than this, but we have to recognize that this goes way beyond us sitting in these chairs. There is something unique and powerful and consecrated about the gathering of God's people together in the church the call to worship we have that's not us calling him that's him calling us and we are to faithfully respond to that call let us pray father in heaven we do pray that at very least we would begin to appreciate the very event that we're in this moment that you inhabit the praises of your people that jesus you you tabernacle you know us Individually and corporately, you promised to bless and you promised to chasten. And we pray that such knowledge would compel us to ever walk faithfully. And we pray for our church that we would ever proclaim the true light who is Christ and that you would shine his light brightly from this body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.